I don't know how I started in higher education, but I do know it was a learning curve, making U-turns, wrong turns, going around in circles and hitting stop signs until I started asking questions, asking faculty, scholars, even myself looking for answers. So now they call me the... The Navigationalist. All right. Let's get to it. Welcome to The Navigationalist, where we will discuss navigational strategies for underrepresented faculty. I am your host, Jimmy Chaffin, and today we have two wonderful guests, the bestest of guests. And I love this show, I've been in tell you, because today we will talk about the effects of the scholar strike. I mean, do you remember? NBA boycotted and then we went on a scholar strike. What happened with that? Did it work? Or were we simply reliving our trauma? And then we will talk more about what does it mean when you receive a grateful, secretive, supportive email or text from your counterparts, but not in public. And newsflash, I don't know if everybody knows, but underrepresented faculty get really, really irked when you confuse them with another person of color. Today we have Sadala Malikou, sociologist and author, You Don't Look Like a Lawyer, Black Women and Systemic Gender Racism. And we have my friend, Robert Reese, assistant professor and scholar. Oh, this is going to be awesome. And let me remind you, if you have a question for our podcast navigation list, please visit our website at greenbookforhighered.com. All right, let's get to it. And we have Dr. Bailey at the cafe. Hello, my name is Dr. Withers. I participated in the scholar strike. Well, I attended several forums that begged me to divulge my soul and now I am tired. How can I continue this push for anti-racism in higher education? How can I effectively do this without being perceived as too pushy and or letting other people take credit for my efforts? Help please. So I've had several conversations about the scholar strikes and the impact, the effects of it, what happened. And I even facilitated some conversations, some forums on the scholar strike. And for many of you who are not familiar with the scholar strike, following the lead of the NBA, WNBA players who briefly scholar strike for like one day, there was a scholar strike in higher education on several campuses around September the 8th and 9th. I believe a teaching to prompt action against racism. During the forums of this day, faculty of color and our white counterparts had a conversation in white institutional spaces. Wanted to do something. They wanted to change the world. Many of them wanted to jump into solution without even truly understanding the impact. But there are some levels to this, right? Dr. Robert Reese, please. Oh, well, I mean, I didn't participate in the scholar strike um simply because my classes are online this semester anyway, right? So I wasn't I wasn't working that day anyway, right? So so it, there was nothing for me to strike. Um but I do feel the pressure, I understand the pressure that they feel to spill their soul to um to their colleagues and I would definitely push back against the need to do that, right? Like we are um, at least we are sociologists, right? And we are academics at large, right? The people who are listening to this podcast and your colleagues shouldn't need to hear your particular horror stories to understand what's happening. There's enough enough data 
on this. Enough people have written about these things already that we should have a good working understanding and enough information to point to without us having to sit there and say, this happened to me. Uh, let me re-traumatize myself for your um, for your learning opportunity. <laughs> exactly. Right. So. And so this is nothing new. This is we have data that's proved that this happens, right? So few institutions openly endorsed the scholar strike, while many simply did not discourage faculty or student participation. Uh, we can assume, I guess, that they that they are interested in creating these spaces to discuss these pertinent issues. But then there's mixed messages about commitment. So the purpose, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, it was to challenge anti-racism, challenge power structures, or maybe the purpose was to plant seeds across campus, or maybe at least just to discuss and listen, right? Uh, Dr. Malikou, please. I mean, for me, um, I did participate. Although, you know, the institution I come from uh, is supportive of this kind of work. Um, and even if they weren't, it's something that matters to me. So I, I am actually teaching a course right now, the evolution and expressions of racism. So it's a Monday, Wednesday meet. And so Tuesday, we didn't have class, um, but my students were very much aware of it and we were able to engage. And then on Wednesday, when we did have class, I'm, I wasn't canceling class because the class is centering this work, right? And these are students who are very much interested in not only engaging in, in this type of learning, but we also made it open uh, in terms of what it is they wanted to talk about with respect to in the moment. So I absolutely support Dr. Withers, um, you know, and applaud him for participating in the scholar strike. You know, I think it's really critically important for each and every one of us to be able to make conscious decisions um, that not only send a signal about what matters to us, but also, you know, brings attention to what we are striking. Right. This abject brutalization of black people in America as well as the wanton disrespect of black lives. And it is devastating for us to have to sit and continuously engage in the same narrative, the same dialogue, and there not being any real changes, right? So, um, you know, I think this really does have a lot to do with this invisible labor, right? And I talk about this in my book, this concept of the invisible labor clause, where we're forced to you know, perform unrecognized, uncompensated labor in, or, in, in, in order to be in the space, right? Um, in, or, in order to navigate as well. Hmm. Yeah, thank you for uh, mentioning it. I think that's the perfect segue. In true, it made me feel hopeful. I heard many examples of faculty and administrators wanting to work together. I heard dreams mixed with tears. And I saw brows stand up in this surprising stance when they heard about the experiences of people of color. And I love the fact that it echoed the narratives of these experiences. And so in your book, you discuss this invisible labor, this inclusion tax. Could you break that down for me and the podcast audience, please? So, you know, in the book, You Don't Look Like a Lawyer, Black Women and Systemic Gendered Racism, I basically introduce and advance the two concepts. One is the Invisible Labor Clause, which explains how marginalized um, groups, which would include, you know, um, BIPOC, women, women of color, right, uh, who are often made invisible when we're talking about stuff like this, the poor LGBTQ plus 
um, and how we're required to perform added unrecognized and uncompensated labor to maintain our positions in organizations, which are predominantly white spaces, but also to navigate our daily existence within social and professional spaces. And what I do with the inclusion tax is, in order to further explain how that invisible labor um, manifests, uh, in particularly white institutional spaces, I want to keep reiterating and reemphasizing that. Um, and Wendy Leo Moore, who came up with that concept in her book, is one of the two faculty members who have been threatened, um, intimidated for participating in the scholar strike. So it's very important when we think about this. Um, the inclusion tax actually elucidates the economic value of this uncompensated invisible labor, right, that we engage in. And that um, we have to perform in academia, since we're speaking about academia and academics in particular. It includes all of the additional resources that are spent, um, money, time, mental and emotional energy in order to be allowed in these white institutional spaces, but also to adhere to or resist white norms. And what I think is interesting about what Dr. Withers um, is talking about here is, you know, these forums and spaces that are created for us to divulge our traumas and those daily uh, racial aggressions, they also need to take into account, you know, the level of emotional and cognitive labor that goes into reliving those traumas, right? And and reliving those traumas for public consumption. That's what we really need to focus on. So I understand and I believe it's, it's important for us to share our experiences, you know, and oftentimes we turn to people of color, you know, uh, in order to be the ones to, to share those experiences in particular. But not when it doesn't result in real substantive change, you know, um, and then not when, you know, it comes at a cost to us. So how do we reconcile that? Right. And I think that this inclusion tax really does speak directly to the way that we have to pay, literally pay in these various ways, whether it's emotional, cognitive, relational or financial, in order to engage in these various forms of dialogue and to be in those spaces uh, and, and doing that kind of work. Um, again, uncompensated. Yes, you are so right. So, underrepresented faculty, as always, I will preach self-care. This is very, very important. I am sure there were some backlash, some unconscious backlash, implicit backlash, or even explicit backlash, like in Mississippi, when a state auditor demanded that professor pay nearly $2,000 after the two-day scholar strike, which shows what we are dealing with in higher education in America. Be aware of your surroundings. Get to know your campus and their systems. We have to get this done. And remember what unconscious bias is. Remember what implicit bias is. All right. Now we're off to our second question with Dr. Bailey at the cafe. Hello, I am Dr. Robinson. Since the George Floyd incident, many of my white counterparts are calling me. Even emailing me more than usual. Some seem sympathetic. One even said he was my ally. What is that? Someone had to literally die for me not to be invisible anymore for them. How can I address this with them? Thank you for sending that question, Dr. Robinson. Okay, so after this happened, you know, I love how often we talk about allies, co-conspirators, the accomplice, and other terms as we explore 
other people's responsibility and privilege. And I think our white counterparts should take responsibility and use their privilege. And I can also relate to Dr. Robinson. Because after the George Foreman incident, I received phone calls, text messages, all in my DM telling me that they appreciate me and my group, whoever I belong to. Did you experience the same thing? I, I think I want to say a few things. First, that it's not just one person who died, right? Like, it's a, this is a cumulative moment, right? We're here because hundreds of thousands of, depends on how you want to, how far you want to go back, millions of people have died to get us to this moment, right? To make us less invisible, less invisible than we were. Um, but I'd encourage people, like, I hate, I hate when people reach out to me privately in support, right? Don't like, oh, oh, or maybe do, right? Okay, fine, right? But I think it's important um, to redirect that. Like, don't speak to me in private, right? You have to speak publicly. You have to speak publicly and forcefully about these things. If you believe in justice, you can't quietly believe in justice. You have to loudly believe in justice. Like being an ally, and I think that term. So, so how did you handle this? Because I'm receiving a lot of emails, a lot of text messages. Tell them, they're telling me that they appreciate my race. <laughs> they appreciate my people in <laughs> uh, all of that. You know? <laughs> they're, they're, they're uncomfortable conversations to have, right? But if people are going to reach out to you to say, I just want to let you know that I'm here for you. You have to say, I appreciate that. Put that on your social media. Right. Like put that on your Facebook, um, put it on your Twitter, release a statement um, to the department or from the department. Right. You have to speak up you have to be loud and vocal um, if you are uh, if you are trying to be an ally. Right. Being an ally means assuming some of the risk and the risk comes with speaking publicly. Right. Every time one of us is forced to say something publicly about a justice issue. We run the risk of being threatened or having our students um, rebel against us or having our colleagues look at us a certain way. Right. And if you are going to be allied with me, you have to take some of that risk, too. Otherwise, it's just a meaningless gesture. Yes, exactly. Uh, I'm wondering, like, what other questions should we be asking? I mean, in your book, there's several obstacles in trying to move up. Right. Lack of training, mentorship, network of opportunities, microaggressions, hyper-visibility, invisible labor. What other questions should we be asking? Um, how are we defining it? Um, have, you know, have there been moments where any of these folks have actually stepped up publicly to acknowledge a flight or an aggression that's happening in the moment? You know, have they spoken out against? subtle racist practices that they know exist. You know, we're not talking about the overt forms. We're talking about the everyday insidious forms of racism that continue to perpetuate racial inequality in these organizational spaces from academia to everywhere else. You know, have they come to your aid when you didn't even know you needed it because a racial slight or an aggression occurs when you're not in the room? Do they talk to black people? Do they talk to Latino people? Do they advocate for you? So I'm writing notes, right? And I feel like I need a checklist. And of course, that is a long, long checklist. Almost not feasible. Is it feasible? And I'm thinking, if I have to look that deep, 
they are probably not an advocate for me. So a key question is, do they advocate for you in public, in those meetings, in policies? No doubt. And then I have another question because I'm very curious about it. I'm asked by underrepresented faculty often, how do you mitigate hypervisibility and levels of invisibility at the workplace? I think there's a duality to it, right? At least for me and I assume for people, um, as for black men maybe in particular, right, about being some combination of invisible and hypervisible at times. Um, especially like I'm a, a big person, right? And there are times being in a place like Austin and being in a place at like um like University of Texas where I walk around the streets, I walk across campus and it's as if I'm not there, right? And I'm and I'm humongous, right? <laughs> and so like I know you see me. Like I've seen I've been walking down the sidewalk before and seen and had people walk right into me, literally into the middle of my chest. As if I wasn't even there. And then there are other times um, where people are performative about um, about being in your space and acknowledging you in really uncomfortable ways. What's up, dog? That type of stuff. Um, <laughs> like, what's up, bro? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so it's weird that, that um, I've often talked about, like, I can't get like a normal interaction with people. It's either always too far to one of the extremes, either invisible, not there at all, or hyper-visible, where uh, people are making too much about the fact that I'm in there. Dr. Malikou, please. Many someones literally had to die to make this person visible, right? Um, And I think we're often made visible when there's this public racial discourse. Um, and we're invisible every other time. So, except when we're making mistakes. Okay, so we're making mistakes. We're hyper visible and made invisible at any other time when we're doing everything um, uh, with excellence because that's what's always required. But I think you know others making mistakes, particularly white folks making mistakes, is perceived as a learning or teachable moment. Whereas for us, it's a confirmation that we weren't qualified or or good enough to be there to begin with, right? Um, falling back on those narratives about affirmative action or diversity hires, tokenism, right? But, you know, this visibility um, also highlights that we do live in a very racialized society. And if Robert is walking around and having one of two interactions with people, one where he's completely made, uh, uh, you know, perceived as a threat and invisible and very visible in this way, and then on the other, when again being visible, falling back on those narratives and stereotypes about black people and black men in particular, you know, it speaks directly to the fact that we are absolutely living in an incredibly racialized society. And, you know, black people are called to, to do um, and make others feel comfortable with their presence, right? We're constantly having to do that work. I need to make people comfortable with me being in a space because there's only one or very few of me and folks don't actually have interactions with other black people. So it becomes an awkward, you know, how, hey, what's up? What's really good? What? <laughs> what are you doing? It's, it's awkward for for me, too. Right. I'm like, this is uncomfortable and awkward, but not in the way that they I think folks would understand. But I think in those moments, we just have to be honest about how we feel. 
That's when your allies should come in, right? If you are an ally and this happened to me and I'm afraid of the consequences, if I tell this guy, hey, man, that's a little too much, I should be able to come to you, um, ally, and you should be able to go to this person and say, hey, man, I heard uh, that you had an interaction in the hallway the other day. It made them kind of uncomfortable. Maybe you should apologize, right? Like that, if you're an ally, those are the type of burdens that you should be assuming. So as a, a writer myself, I am always exploring and searching for poetry. And I discovered some poetry uh, written 20 years ago by faculty of color complaining about the climate on campus in higher education. And I've discovered um, poetry today uh, written in 2020 complaining about the climate and on campus in higher education. Many of my colleagues um, often ask me um, or fuss at me and, and they, they uh, say they don't understand. We have over 20 years of study that talks about microaggressions, the situations that underrepresented faculty are experiencing. And they ask me, shouldn't we be further? Are things getting better? When can we describe ourselves and our counterparts as woke? Are things the same now as they were like 20 years ago? I will say that I am in a department here, one of the biggest and highest ranked sociology departments in the United States. And this department has never had a black woman successfully go through the tenure process. My first year here, right, I was the only black black person in this department, right? There's almost 50 faculty here. So, I mean, I don't want, no, it's not easier. Um, I mean, the challenges might be different, um, but easier, no way. And these issues continue in other workplaces outside of higher education, right? In other sectors of business besides higher education. It's so interesting hearing you say that because obviously the research I do looks at black women lawyers, right? And the fact that there's so few and there's barely any black female partners. Um, so I'm doing this research while being on the market and still finding it very difficult to get a job. Like, it doesn't make sense to me. Like, you know you don't have enough black faculty in all the, the varying departments, right, and, and institutes. It doesn't make sense. So what? how are we defining progress? You know, we just we have to keep coming back to what those definitions are, what they mean to us today, and how they're still very much similar to, you know, the circumstances that we find ourselves in today are very similar to the poem. It's the same. Like part of the problem is that people want to when they're hiring, they want to have their cake and eat it, too. It's important to acknowledge and people are reluctant to acknowledge that hiring black people, diversifying your department necessarily means that some white people are going to miss out on jobs. Right. And some qualified white people are going to miss out on jobs. And that's the price you pay. Right. When you have been unjustly enriched by these institutions. For us to achieve equality, the people who have been unjustly enriched have to lose. So the people who have been unjustly impoverished can gain. That's just how it goes. That means that when we're comparing comparing files and if we want to diversify that great white person that you all love hiring committee might have to miss out on this job so that we can give that opportunity to somebody who has historically been denied that opportunity. People want to you can't create more power, right? There's only 100% of power. <laughs> and if white people have 85%, it, 
if we want to give black people 30 percent, right, that means that you have to lose some of it. You can't make more. And that's what uh, I think people want to do. They want to make more power. But you can't do that. You have to reach, which means the people who have it have to lose it. Wow. The concept of giving up power. That means our white counterparts will give up power. That means men will give up power to our female faculty. That means the privilege giving up their power. So we still have a lot of work to do. And I remember the first time I entered higher education, I wanted to work somewhere where the road was already paved. And then I began thinking there is no paved roads. So listen to me. Listen to your mentors. Nourish those social networks. Follow us on the navigation list. Stop think and respond and repeat and remember this system was not created with us in mind now we're off to our third question with carolina at the cafe hello i am dr luis martinez a proud puerto rican let me say i usually experience my progressions every day but one that irks me is when they get me confused with another person of color race does not matter they confused me with the president of our college, and he looks nothing like me. How can I address these microaggressions with these people? So, thank you for this question, Dr. Martinez, because this question is funny and it is, it's not funny, and it, and it happens to me all the time. There's a name for it, Failure to Differentiate. It is a microaggression podcast audience, Failure to Differentiate, and yeah, I've feel them because I experienced this. It happens to me. And race has nothing to do with it, right? We look nothing alike. I see you laughing, but what is really going on with this failure to differentiate? Yeah. It's hilarious. Every time it's hilarious, ridiculous, hilariously ridiculous. I'm just like, have you not even seen, have you not even looked me in the face <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't understand what's happening here. Like, give me one. Give me one. Give me one. Is what? Someone actually confused me for Wanda Sykes. Who <laughs> 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 might We don't. We don't look alike. We we don't have the same body types. Especially when you're when it's in the organization, right? In the in the school. <laughs> Just think about it. There are so few of us. So how is it that you're consistently confusing us all the time for the other black person, right? Um, I think there's really so much to be said about how uh, the white racial frame, Joe Fagan's concept, how this actually operates to keep us all relegated, you know, into one monolithic group for particular people, right? Without consideration of our human and individual differences. It doesn't make any sense. How come I know? How come I can tell the difference between people? But folks can't tell the difference between me. And I'm talking about whether it's, you know, complexion, uh, hair, uh, height, body type, all of it, all of it. Um, you know, there's literally an erasure that continues to happen. And I think that's, again, it goes along with this idea of being invisible and hypervisible. You know, um, I'm hypervisible as a black blob, like a black body. But you don't even see my face. Right. You can't really see me. You just see me as like this black person. 
Which is why you can't differentiate between me and someone else. <laughs> yes, and we're not talking about doppelgangers, right? We are here, then we disappear again, and it's been so long since we've been seen, we appear visible again later. So what does it mean? First of all, this is a person ignoring the racial and ethnic differences and sometimes not caring. I've seen the same person do this over and over again without even trying to correct themselves. It is small to them. All Asian Americans don't look alike. All Puerto Ricans don't look alike. We are not monolithic people. Thinking that all members of a racial ethnic minority group speak the same language, have the same value, have the same culture, right? And not knowing, and I give my colleagues credit, that this is a part of the idea that people of color are being treated as lesser beings. They don't see our face. Like you said, they see a dark blob. So could you give our podcast audience uh, tips? How should we respond to this act? Is it a teachable moment or should we just preserve our energy? What do you do? I say in the moment, again, you know, you just have to address it directly because people uncomfortable they need to be uncomfortable making these kinds of mistakes every day all the time right and and i think maybe engaging the person in the fact that you know you're not whom they've mistaken you for so directly saying well i'm not that person um but why did you think that was me maybe asking those questions like what is it about me that made you think that that was me it's a learning moment. This is a teachable moment in every instance. So when you confuse me for someone else and I address it in the moment, it's going to be uncomfortable for you. And maybe that feeling of being uncomfortable is something that you don't want to repeat. We know exactly why you mistook me for this person, whoever that person is. You need to name it and then recognize it in yourself and then move forward. That's the point. Right. Like If we keep letting folks consistently mistake us for the other black person, then we're almost engaging in this, you know, very um, you know, unhealthy uh, cyclical process where we're having to then manage those traumas ourselves, right? We're holding the bag every single time. What tends to happen to me is that I don't even realize it happened, right? People will come and just have the conversation and like, by the time the conversation is over, like during the conversation, I'm thinking this is weird. Like, What's happening right now? And then it's over and I'm sitting in my car or sitting in my office. And I'm sitting in the house like, what just happened? Did they think, oh, they thought I was somebody else. That's why we were having this conversation that was, that confused me. So I'm going to have to sit there and deepen and wonder, right? Like, um, what did you do wrong or did you do something wrong? Did I forget somebody that I'm supposed to know? Did I forget a commitment that I have? Right. And then when in fact it's not about you, it's about them and their uh, race. Well, I can't say I have received several free cups of coffee because of this. Right. So one reason we created this podcast, we wanted underrepresented faculty to be able to name their experiences. Failure to differentiate. So if someone confuses you with another, tell them you can do it because you belong in higher education and remember the layers. These white spaces and dominant white culture in American society operate to normalize their white experiences, conforming to comfort of our white counterparts. You have to disrupt it while protecting your energy. Awesome. So could you give our podcast audience some navigational advice? 
that for the one advice that I would give um, is to address things in the moment. Try try to find the courage, right? Um, and and hold your institutions accountable for what they have said is part of their mission. Uh, the way you know, and the way that we have to do that is by by speaking up and saying it, even though it's hard. And that's a that's an invisible labor that you are going to engage in, and the tax is high. But we have to do it because one, relying on allies who who just who just rely on the word and not actually focus on what it means in the practice. And how that also translates in terms of sponsorship is really, really critical. It's not going to help us. We need to be present in those moments and also, you know, take a stand, just like we're taking a stand in the research that we do and, and, and how we, you know, publicly engage uh, uh, others about race and racism. Um, we need to do it in our own spaces because it's, they're getting away with it. To be kind of um, affirmative here, uh, just a little bit. Like I, I'm active on Twitter, right? And so, like, I see a lot of graduate students and undergraduate students um, who feel discouraged about how about the horror stories that they hear from people of color in in academia. And I want to say that it's still it's still worth it to be here. Like we should, we deserve to be here. We should be here. And if this is what you want to do, you should still do it, right? Like don't let people scare you away from doing this because doing research is a worthwhile venture. And it's something that, um, that even if you aren't doing race work or doing justice work, right? Like your thoughts and your ideas and whatever you choose to write about, are um, are worthy and valuable, and the academic community needs to hear what you have to say. Um, don't be scared away. Even though things haven't changed, and, and if you're in my class, um, even though I'm going to spend three months, four months telling you how things have actually got worse since the 1980s, but you should still, you know, hang out anyway. Thank you so much for joining us. This was awesome. I learned a lot from you. Thank you. This is Navigational Report 55320. If my hunch is right, I am not sure, but I don't know if there will be another scholar strike. But racist policies and acts still exist. We don't have to wait for a scholar strike to disrupt this system. Just make sure it is actionable and not about reliving your experiences. That is exhausting. And if you are an underrepresented administrator and you didn't attend, that might be a red flag for us. Because not only do we want our white counterparts to advocate for us in public, but we need our underrepresented deans, VP, president to advocate as well, says the lip service. And if you do not check people when they commit microaggressions, such as failure to differentiate, they would do it over and over and over again. Wow, this was awesome. Thanks for joining us. I am Jimmy Chaffin, the host, and we'll see you on our next episode on The Navigationist.